So I, I will not spare you the Sanskrit. Atta, yoga nushasanam, yoga chitta vritti nirodaha, tata drastila swarupevastana. That is the opening lines of the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali that Mark alluded to. It's quite extraordinary. <clears throat> Sutra in the Buddhist sense uh, sometimes generically just means scripture, like chant the sutras uh, and so forth. Pali pronunciation is sutta. Uh, although in a more specific sense, sutra means uh, the discourses of the historical Buddha. It's a certain section within the uh, Buddhist literature. Um, however, within the broader context of Indic civilization, sutra has a different meaning. <clears throat> um, it's a literary form, and the uh, point of this literary form is to uh, condense a science into the uh, shortest possible exposition in terms of numbers of syllables. So the Yoga Sutras describe uh, <clears throat> what's called Ashtangika Yoga, or the eight limbs of yoga, eight limb yoga, sometimes called Raja Yoga. And <clears throat> you'll also notice that Buddhism is Arya Ashtangika Marga, and Buddhism has an eightfold path also. Now, even the words are the same. The eight elements are not the same, but clearly there's influence going uh, back and forth. Uh, what it says in Sanskrit is uh, yoga is chitta vritti nirodha. It is the cessation of the fluctuations of consciousness. That, then and only then does the true observer abide in its nature. It presents a practice that is very similar in many ways to Buddhism. Um, on the other hand, it, pre it presents a conceptual framework that in some ways is the diametric opposite. Because it's uh, what we call gone is nirota, that's cessation. Uh, but whereas in Buddhism, <clears throat> it's interpreted as no self, in uh, a, a Hindu context, it's in, uh, particularly in the Yoga Sutra context, mm -hmm. it's interpreted as the true self, the true observer. If you are just involved in concepts, um, like a scholar or a devotee, um, <clears throat> then <clears throat> it's an endless argument. Uh, who has the right uh, uh, formulations. But if you're involved in practice, um, you realize that there are 
many alternative ways to describe uh, what we, uh, uh, the effects of the practice. And it is also true that sometimes identical vocabulary uh, isn't referring to the same thing at all. So to develop a kind of sensitivity where <clears throat> you know that you can detect when the same words refer to something different, and you can also detect where very different words may refer to very similar things. That's, um, that takes a little bit of practice. I was, uh, there was a request to, yeah, in the notes, for me to talk about Jewish mysticism tonight, apropos of Shabbat. Um, and I, I love to talk about that, but I thought I would frame it in a somewhat larger context and talk about world mysticism. So, and then how Jewish and other ones uh, fit in and how what we do fits in. So, what comes to your mind when you hear the English word mysticism? Does something pop into your head? Uh, huh? Sweat lodge. Sweat lodge. Uh, no, mysticism. Sweat lodge. Sweat lodge? Okay. <laughs> what else? Something that used to happen to the saints and doesn't happen to regular people like us. Something very special. <laughs> this is interesting. Uh, uh, other people, what pops into your head when you hear that? Contemplation. Huh? Contemplation. Sacred. Sacredness. Spiritual prayer. Now we were mentioning the word mysticism. It's got an ism on it, okay? That word specifically. <clears throat> Interesting, okay. Did you say direct experience of truth? The whole collection of traditions, of spiritual traditions. Cool. Well, let me tell you what pops into my head as soon as I hear that word. Uh, <clears throat> what pops into my head is ambiguity. <laughs> yeah. It is dangerous to talk about mysticism as simply a word without realizing that it is used in two very different senses. Um, and the two senses that it is used in is, uh, is actually rather interesting. So, um, in the sort of colloquial sense, it connotes New Agey realms of power kinds of uh, unusual experiences, uh, visions, psychic powers, um, <clears throat> that's, uh, uh, that sort of thing. Um, <clears throat> but as a technical term, 
that would be used by uh, scholars, historians, uh, people who specialize in uh, academic study of religion. It refers to something quite different. Uh, it refers to um, the contemplative endeavor, what we're doing here. So the first thing one needs to be careful about in, in, if you're having a discussion with someone about, quote, mysticism, uh, is to be sure that you're talking about the same mysticism. Uh, because uh, you could end up in uh, uh, a lot of uh, uh, misunderstanding. So what's the relationship between the two meanings of mysticism? Well, the way that I sort of look at it, you can think of the mystical path as a journey from the surface of consciousness to the source of consciousness. <coughs> and in making that journey, you some people encounter some weird, unusual stuff um, in the intermediate realms between surface and source. The intermediate realms are those are the realms of the archetypes. Those are the realms uh, in which gods, ghosts, ancestors, <clears throat> uh, <clears throat> angels uh, can actually be experienced uh, sensorially, perhaps vividly. So in passing from surface to source and going through that intermediate material, some people uh, or, or in passing through that intermediate realm, some people have weird experiences. Um, that's mysticism with the, uh, uh, I call it mysticism with a, a small m. Not everyone who passes from surface to source um, encounters uh, weird, unusual stuff. But some people do. Um, now, when you touch the formless source, the salient uh, defining characteristic of touching the formless source is that it profoundly changes your notion of who you are. It's like a paradigm shift. Um, <clears throat> and that's mysticism with a capital M. <laughs> That's the way I describe it. So, as several people mentioned, all around the world we find uh, actually both kinds of mystical experience. Uh, the mysticism with a capital M um, <clears throat> is of course what we're mostly interested in here. Now, for many people, mystical experience in that sense comes about as the result of systematic uh, practice. However, it is important to realize that um, sometimes um, people come to these experiences 
without um, any formal practice at all. It just happens. <clears throat> Maybe once or twice a year, I get an email from someone who hadn't done any meditation, uh, but just one day, like one person put it, one day I was just big. Uh, uh, or another, or one day, you know, the world uh, uh, and, and myself became paper thin, and there but not there, and it's, and it's permanent. It just happens. Now that indicates to me that this is a, a natural phenomenon. Um, <clears throat> The other thing that indicates to me that it's a natural, in other words, the fact that it just happens without cultivation to people. The other thing that indicates to me uh, that it's a natural phenomenon is the relative universality of uh, <clears throat> contemplative or mystical practice around the world. Um, so if you take the Yoga Sutras, for example, it divides into these eight um, steps. Yama, Niyama, Asana, Pranayama, Pratyahara, Dharana, Dhyana, Samadhi. Um, <clears throat> the first couple steps um, are about cust uh, religious customs and ethics. Um, Sort of like getting your act together uh, as a human being in terms of character. And that roughly maps onto what in uh, Buddhism is called Shila. And that also maps onto the first few stages uh, of St. Teresa's model, which is uh, in a book called uh, Las Moradas, the Interior Castle. It starts with this sort of like working on your behavior, working on your issues, that kind of thing. Um, then in the, in the Yoga Sutras, it uh, proceeds through, uh, <clears throat> uh, and of course this is what makes the Indic system in some ways superior to the Western system. It talks about uh, uh, asana pranayama. So that means, uh, working with the breath and postures. That the notion that posture has an impact on, um, uh, on consciousness was not uh, appreciated in Western mysticism the way it was in the East. Okay, so then I'm gonna skip some details, um, but then you go through a sequence of ever-deepening uh, concentration. And um, <clears throat> that's also what's in uh, Teresa's uh, uh, interior castle, after you've sort of got your act together. Then she gives many benchmarks uh, over many years, decades of developing more and more concentration power. 
Now, the Yoga Sutras describe the same thing. Um, and it's, uh, that corresponds roughly to the Buddhist jhana system, the absorption system. So we can see that these maps uh, in general uh, are, uh, will have a component of uh, working on your character. They'll have a component of building concentration power. Then they'll have a component uh, <clears throat> of something else. But here's where things can get very confusing uh, vocabulary-wise. Because um, in Buddhism, that something else is uh, <clears throat> looked upon as a, a kind of transformation of consciousness, a new way of understanding who you are. And it's called prajna. So in Buddhism, it precedes shila, samadhi, prajna. When you read St. Teresa, uh, her interior castle proceeds exactly the same way. Uh, work on yourself as a person, then all these different stages of ever-deepening uh, absorption. And then what's amazing is to read very late in life, she had this experience of, um, and you can see that she's struggling to convey how different it is from everything she experienced before. And she refers to it as an intellectual vision. Okay? But she says, that, that's not really what I'm talking about because it wasn't a vision. <laughs> and it's not intellectual. <laughs> um, but something shifted. And the salient feature of that was that, um, uh, well, the way that she put it, the self-forgetting is so great that it seems as though the soul no longer exists. I mean, anyone with a Buddhist background immediately sees insight into no-self. And it's permanent. It's permanent. But along with the paradigm of nothingness comes also the paradigm of oneness. They're related. So she also describes this experience as, um, she says, the, um, uh, the, the oneness with, uh, with God is like the oneness of water in water. Now, she's writing in the 16th century, she's actually writing for the Inquisition uh, uh, to, you know, that they would uh, approve <laughs> what she had to say, because you had to, like, get everything passed, right? <laughs> By the thought police <laughs> of <laughs> Catholic Europe. Um, uh, and it had no difficulty passing. In fact, it became the standard model used by the Catholic Church um, to this day. And when I first read this, and I saw, my God, this like maps on, like 
so clearly to Buddhist experience, it totally blew my mind. Because this is 16th century Spain. This is a completely different world. Why should this map on to something that someone wrote in 6th century Sri Lanka? These worlds had no contact whatsoever. Um, and yet they're describing roughly similar maps. So that's mysticism with a capital M. Um, what's uh, what can be a little confusing is that in the Yoga Sutras, they don't explicitly talk about the wisdom function as being um, in some, some way different from the concentration process. However, um, it's implied in there. The steps, it, the last three steps in yoga are called dharana, dhyana, samadhi. Um, so dharana means holding. That's the stage in concentration where uh, your attention wanders and you have to bring it back. Your attention wanders and you have to bring it back. You've probably noticed that. <laughs> stay, stay. That's dharana. Dhyana, your attention doesn't wander anymore. It, uh, the, the description in the Yoga Sutras is that it's uh, like an unbroken stream of sesame oil. Okay, when you, when you pour oil, okay, it, it, there's a continuity there. So your, whatever your object of focus is, your attention stays there. Um, that's called dhyana. That is the word that corresponds to the, the Pali word jhana. And clearly there's a relationship, although they don't, it's not a exact one-for-one -one correspondence, but they're pointing to similar general directions. Then there's the final stage in the yoga path, Raja yoga path, is called samadhi. Okay, so remember I said the trick is to know when the same word refers to different things and when different words refer to the same thing. Okay, it can be very tricky to have the sensitivity to be able to smell what's going on. So I've, I've seen endless arguments between yoga people and Buddhists about samadhi. Samadhi is where it's at. Samadhi is not where it's at. Samadhi is where it's at. Samadhi is not where it's at. Not realizing that they're not really talking about quite the same thing. It's confusing because it's the same syllables and it's closely related, but not exactly the same. It, within the Buddhist context, well, I showed you the three steps in Buddhism, shila, samadhi, prajna. That's called the trini shikshani, the threefold training. It's a way, another way of organizing the Eightfold Path. Um, so within this context, and in general within Buddhism, as a general principle, 
Samadhi is a generic term. Anything from a light uh, focus to uh, a concentrated state so profound that you don't need to move for days and your physiology is so altered that you might be mistaken for dead. Okay, anything along that whole continuum um, in, in Buddhism is called samadhi. But in the Yoga Sutras, only the deepest part is referred to as samadhi. And there's actually two kinds of samadhi distinguished in the yoga system. There is um, sabija samadhi and nirbija samadhi. Samadhi with a seed and samadhi without a seed. So what is a seed? A seed is a sensory object that you're focusing on. So uh, let's say, for example, that you were focusing on music. <coughs> you wanted to make music your path to enlightenment. So you're, uh, you start listening to music. I, I, I went through a period of about three years where I was uh, like really bored with meditation. And the only way I could get myself interested was by listening to uh, classical music. Uh, but at least it sort of kept me going, you know. Um, so you're listening to the music and uh, your attention wanders and you bring it back, your attention wanders, you bring it back. At some point your attention doesn't wander so much anymore. Then at some point, so you know, bringing it back, that's dharana. It doesn't wander anymore, it just stays there. That's dhyana in the yoga sense of the word dhyana. But then you can have this experience where there's just the music and no sense of an I listening to the music. You become the music. Um, that's sabija samadhi. Well, how does that come about from the paradigm that we've been using here, um, it's simple. There's only so much real estate in consciousness. If 100% of the awareness is going into the music, that leaves zero awareness to go back to see in, hear in, feel in. Okay? So, um, <clears throat> the uh, So it's identical to Sasaki Roshi's, um, to the first part of Sasaki Roshi's koan, how do you become free from yourself when you see the flower? Well, he wants you to have a visual experience of just sight and no reactive self. So um, that's Sabija Samadhi. Um, it's essentially uh, well, yeah, it's a, that's what, the, but there's, there's bija, there's, there is a sensory event there. There's just all of the, uh, all of the attention is allocated to that sensory event and back where there would have been a self, where there would have been see in, hear in, feel in, 
Um, there, there isn't that. There's just the see out or the hear out. But you're still seeing a flower. You're still hearing the music <laughs> as sound. Um, a deeper experience is nirbija samadhi. Samadhi without a seed. That's formless samadhi. Well, what in the world is that? Um, that is samadhi on God. <laughs> that is chitta vritti nirodha. That is the cessation of the fluctuations of consciousness. You have such a complete experience of the see out of the flower or the hear out of the music that um, there's no fixating of the sight or the sound into a thing. And so um, there's just the, the, the goneness of the sight or sound and there's just the goneness of the self, and they are the same goneness. Um, as I say, in, in the Yoga Sutras, that is described in terms of samadhi. Whereas in Buddhism, it would be uh, described in terms of insight into no self and emptiness. So, that's the source of the argument between the Buddhists and the yoga, yoga practitioners. It's uh, an inability to realize that sometimes the same word is used in different ways. And sometimes different words are used to point to essentially similar things. So if you attain nirbija samadhi, you have also attained um, uh, uh, a, uh, an abiding contact with God. Uh, well, not exactly an abiding contact. You can't have an abiding contact. <laughs> um, you can only um, have a, a self that returns and looks back and knows that uh, an instant before um, it was one with everything. It was one in a nothing experience. But that's the reoccurring of a self. It, enlightenment is actually a kind of self. I know that's like hugely confusing. When I first heard Sasaki Roshi say that, enlightenment is a kind of self. It's like, well, wait a minute, that's like totally contrary to what Buddhism says. Enlightenment is no self, right? Well, enlightenment is an, is an experience of no self. But in the moment of experiencing gone or nirbija samadhi, in the moment of experiencing that, there's no experiencer. So there's actually no conscious awareness of it. But a second later, um, a self returns, and it has seeing, hearing, feeling that represent the no-self experience that it just had. 
and as the years and decades proceed, that returning of the self um, as an enlightened self, it becomes clearer and clearer and clearer. It has a clearer mental image, it has clearer way of being able to describe, and it has clearer emotions um, around the experience of no-self that it just had. So, um, in the yoga tradition, the goal is to uh, attain sahaja samadhi. That's at least according to some of the books. What, is, what does sahaja mean? Well, sahaja means on the natch, natural, okay? So in this case, it means in daily life. It means as you're bopping around in the world, um, thousands of times a day, you have uh, <clears throat> uh, an experience of the one <laughs> that is the nothing, <laughs> the completeness that is the cessation. Um, and then you have a clear experience of coming from that and, um, uh, and you know where you just came from and you know exactly what your job is, <laughs> um, how, to, how to get back. Um, how you get back is by not trying to get back, but by completely uh, uh, affirming, saying yes to the re-arising of the personal self. So this is uh, equivalent to, um, in our system, um, the working with gone and then seeing how we come from and return uh, to that moment by moment. But it's not formulated, as I say, in terms of a wisdom or an insight quite as, quite specifically. So it can be confusing, it was very confusing to me, because I thought, well, the yoga system just culminates in, in high concentration, it doesn't culminate in enlightenment. So it's inferior to the Buddhist formulation. But then later on, I realized that that was just an artifact of uh, the language and the way things are described. So um, all around the world, there is both mystical experience with the small m, the new agey sort of mystical schmystical <laughs> realm of power stuff, and then there's mystical experience with, with the big M. So, um, but the different traditions might, the components as far as I can see, are all, the same components are always there. But they may be languaged differently, or there may be a, dif a, a different emphasis um, that obscures the, the fundamental similarity. Uh, in the Christian mystical tradition, oh, and I should say, well, what are the components? Uh, what are the universal components? Well, I just gave you one formulation, which is uh, Shiva Samadhi Prajna. So you uh, sort of work on yourself, then you develop high concentration, and then 
you have something that in Buddhism is described as going beyond concentration, and also St. Teresa of Avila <coughs> described it that way, as going beyond concentration states. It's a change in your, um, your paradigm about what you are, what you're made of, literally. Um, but in the, the yoga system, it's just called Nirbija Samadhi, and you, you, you might not realize, you might think, oh, that's just more concentration. But if you attain Chitta Vritti Niroda, um, the cessation of the fluctuations of consciousness, um, whether you talk about it in those terms or not, your paradigm, uh, your model for what self is, will change. And there will be a wisdom component there. So one way to look at, at what's universal is there's work you do on yourselves for yourself. There's, there's sort of like work you do to um, uh, improve yourself. Then there's always uh, a description of the sequence of stages of concentration. And then there is what in Buddhism is described as that which goes beyond concentration, where you uh, gain uh, an insight, which in Buddhism is called emptiness or no-self. So, uh, in, with, in the Christian way of working, um, the generic term for the states of high concentration is um, recollection, meaning not to remember, but to collect back. Okay, re means back, con means together, and legere means to pick up or to gather. So recollectio, in ordinary English, it means to remember. But as a technical term in uh, a Christian contemplative usage, recollection means what we in Buddhism call samadhi. But if that recollection is, um, uh, uh, is very deep, it's called um, infused contemplation. And that pretty much corresponds to uh, dhyana and that kind of thing. It's a very deep uh, experience. Now, one of the things that's a little bit confusing is that there is a link between concentration, which is simply the ability to uh, hold a focus. There's a link between concentration and calming and tranquility. And indeed, in the Buddhist system, there is a term, shamatha in Sanskrit, or samatha in Pali, that has both of those connotations. It mean, it literally, sh sh sham is, means to tranquilize. Uh, and ta means to fixate, okay? Uh, so it's it has, it's a single word that connotes both the tranquilizing aspect and the concentration aspect. That's why in Tibetan, uh, shamatha was translated as shine. She means tranquil. Ne means abiding, okay? Meaning you're able to hold the focus uh, where you want. 
However, strictly speaking, the calming aspect and the concentrating aspect, although they're obviously very related, they are not identical things. Um, but you need, calming is calming, okay, but you need some calm in order to be able to hold the focus. Conversely, if you can hold the focus, things tend to mellow out a little bit. But in my way of thinking, they're not identical. Um, that's why all the techniques that I teach you have concentration, but the focus on rest technique um, emphasizes the, the calming or tranquilizing aspect. So, within the uh, Christian uh, way of working, the tranquilizing aspect is very much uh, emphasized. And so, another term that's used is prayer of quiet, oratio quies. Um, so, um, The, uh, the emphasis is on um, getting into these deep, tranquil states. And the paradigm uh, for what happens uh, in those deep, tranquil states is the soul unites with God. And that is certainly a legitimate paradigm. That's a way to think about it. Um, within the Islamic <coughs> mystical way of working, we find this, the same elements. What's Islamic mysticism called? Sufism. Um, so we find the same elements. Um, the paradigm for what happens is also similar. What is supposed to happen is something called FANAK, F-A-N-A. And uh, what that means in Arabic is um, nirota. <laughs> it, means, uh, it, it means annihilation. Uh, so uh, the sense of personal self uh, is seen through, annihilated. And one experiences uh, a fana filaha, which means um, a, a, a disappearance of the somethingness of self that allows you to melt into Allah, into God. So we see something roughly similar to the um, Christian paradigm, sort of like merging with God kind of thing. What about Jewish mysticism? Well, Jewish mysticism has two paradigms. One is something called Dvekut, or in the Ashkenazic pronunciation, Dvekas. Uh, you know that there's two, <laughs> there's two pronunciations of Hebrew. I, I was right on the transition. Um, my first Hebrew classes when I was a kid we learned the Eastern European pronunciation. Then when Israel achieved statehood um, uh, and decided to go with the Sephardic, so then they, they shifted <laughs> in my synagogue. I had to like relearn the whole thing again. Well, it's not that bad, but it really didn't, it didn't sound like Hebrew. <laughs> uh, 
but anyway, uh, so Dvekut is the proper Sephardic Israeli pronunciation. And Dvekut uh, is, um, I guess it would be written in English, D-E-V-E-K-U-T. Um, that's the oneness paradigm, okay? So that is there. Um, and it's talked about. And the idea is that you can achieve dvekut with anything, okay? Uh, if you fully focus on um, anything that you're doing, you can have this sense of there's this, uh, it becomes a merging experience. But there's another paradigm that's used in Jewish mysticism that I personally find extremely interesting. Um, because um, it's, you don't see anything like it in Christian mysticism. You don't see anything like it in Islamic mysticism. Um, this second paradigm. Um, but where you do find this second paradigm is in Sasaki Roshi's formulation of Buddhism. So, years ago, I, uh, I was in Montreal, we were having a, a session, a, a Zen retreat, um, at this Zen center that is like half of Leonard Cohen's house. He was born in Montreal, so he gave half of his you know, house that he owns there to make a Zen center, and then he kept the other half to live in. So, um, he and I were staying in the, um, in the half where he lives. Um, and so uh, I like uh, woke up one morning and um, he was like uh, studying, looking at the Talmud, okay? Um, and so I sort of said, uh, you know, what, uh, what, what are you doing? And he said, well, these, the Talmud, if you, that's like, you know, the Jewish uh, sort of uh, Abhidharma, I guess you could say, <laughs> to mix metaphors. Uh, um, he said, these guys were trying to get to what Roshit is teaching, <laughs> or something to that effect. So, um, There is this paradigm of uh, Bri'a Yesh Me'ayin. That, as I say, among the Western uh, forms of mysticism, as far as I know, only Judaism has this one. So Judaism has the merging with God, Dvekut thing that, uh, as I say, is so characteristic of the other Abrahamic religions, Christianity and Islam. But Judaism has this other thing, and this other thing is actually the main paradigm. What does Bri'ah Yesh Me'ayin mean? Well, Bri'ah means uh, creation. Yesh means existence or something or self, has all of those connotations. And me means from, and ayin means 
divine nothingness. So how is it that the infinite somethings of self and world arise from the one very special nothing that is God? To understand clearly that process is the central goal of Jewish mysticism. I remember years ago, um, having uh, here in LA, having lunch with uh, a Chabad uh, rabbi, which is a form of, quote, ultra-Orthodox. Um, and I, I said, sum it up for me. What's your trip about? <laughs> I don't think I used the word trip. Okay? It, was, it was something like, okay, like, you know, lay it on me. What's, what's the, uh, um, what's the final goal here? He, he said, well, the final goal is in ordinary life um, to be able to, uh, in each moment of experience, um, experience how that moment is coming from and returning to God. And one, one way that that's formulated is what I just said, Another way that it's formulated is in the phrase Shifti Hashem Lenegdi Tamid. This is a really, really interesting phrase in Hebrew. I spent actually literally uh, an entire morning in Israel with one of the top uh, uh, biblical uh, scholars, I mean secular type scholars, right? objective scholars, on, 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 on the Hebrew language, um, discussing, she just like filled in all of these uh, rich connotations of the phrase that I, I just said in Hebrew. So what it means is um, <clears throat> literally um, to you, you can't even translate it into English uh, but it, it means to um, uh, to always equate what is in front of you with God. Um, so what does it mean to equate? Well, there's a superficial way that that's done in Jewish mysticism, and then there's a deep way that that's done. The superficial way is that you use the associations of the Hebrew language to constantly have things remind you conceptually of God. So that's a sort of intellectual way of trying to be thinking about God all the time. Um, but from, that's just the beginning of continuous contact though. The deeper experience is not um, sort of using all of these associations, it's not this intellectual endeavor. It's a perceptual endeavor. So the deeper meaning of shifti Hashem lenigdi tamid, 
to have God in front of your eyes all the time is to like literally have God in front of your eyes. So that means that um, you're experiencing what's quote in front of your eyes, and in other words, what's in your senses, what you see here and uh, contact for your body. You're experiencing the inner part of that, the self and the outer part, the world. You're experiencing that coming from and returning to the source moment by moment. In order to be able to have that experience, how is that achieved? Well, you have to be willing to go through a process called bitul hayesh, which in Hebrew means the annihilation of the somethingness within you. Mm -hmm. Sound familiar? Um, then you're gifted, um, or put in our terms, um, you have to see the gone of self and world many, 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 many times before you start to have a clear perception of how that gone manifests, how that nothing manifests all, the one nothing, manifests the myriad somethings of self and world. So, um, how does that occur? Well, according to the Jewish formulation in Kabbalah, um, it occurs through the, uh, the, the it meaning the manifestation of self and world. It occurs through an interplay of two forces. Why am I not surprised? Chesed and Gruha. Chesed is affirmation, expansion. Vura is negation, contraction. And um, in between these two, there is um, something called tsimtsum. They pull apart and they create a cleft. And in that cleft, uh, uh, self and world arise moment by moment. So this should sound rather similar. It is utterly extraordinary to me that Sasaki Roshi's paradigm maps on this closely with the Kabbalistic point of view. Because I, although he's well studied within the Buddhist tradition, um, I, I'm, uh, uh, I know, f uh, I, I am sure he has no knowledge of uh, the Jewish meditative tradition. And certainly the Jewish meditative tradition that was formulated centuries and centuries ago uh, in Europe and the Middle East um, never heard of Sasaki Roshi. And so it, like, it blows my mind how similar it is. With, so um, within the Buddhist tradition, if you've ever studied Zen, 
you probably learned the Heart Sutra, okay? This is a famous uh, uh, sutra in the, in, the, uh, the, in the sense of scripture that's chanted. And uh, the lines go, um, Kanji zai bo sa gyo jin han ya hara mitaji shoken go un kaiku do isaiku yaku shari shi shiki fui ku ku fui shiki. Okay, so when the Bodhisattva Avalokiteshvara was practicing Prajna Paramita, um, he slash she <laughs> uh, <coughs> clearly saw that um, all the scan. Uh, 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 that the five aggregates are empty uh, <clears throat> and that that was the secret for passing uh, beyond all suffering. And then Avalokiteshvara begins uh, 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 to speak to Shariputra. So who was Shariputra? Shariputra was the historical Buddha's chief disciple. And um, Shariputra is associated with the Abhidharma. And the Abhidharma is this for, uh, formulation in Buddhism that classifies the world and sensory experience with the point of view of um, that you can, if you um, sort of untangle these elements, you'll uh, be able to become free. So that's actually very true, but the problem is that at some point people started to just read the Abhidharma and not practice meditation. And they, they equated learning these lists of categories with enlightenment. So then Mahayana arose by way of reaction um, and said, hey, just learning these lists of elements isn't going to enlighten you. Um, you have to have a direct experience of shunyata, of emptiness. So Avalokiteshvara, representing the Mahayana point of view, speaks to Shariputra, representing the sort of scholastic Hinayana point of view. And what does uh, Avalokiteshvara say? He says, Shiki fu i ku ku fu i shiki. Form is uh, <clears throat> form is emptiness. Emptiness is form. Now, the Zen people riff on that line big time. Okay, <laughs> <clears throat> because of the way it's phrased. Form is emptiness, emptiness is form. When a Zen teacher gives a teisho on that portion of the scripture, inevitably they will say that this summarizes the entire path and that the phrase form is emptiness, shiki hui ku, and the phrase kuhu i shiki, uh, emptiness is not different from form, that these are two sides to the practice. Form is emptiness is bitul hayesh. It's the experience of the annihilation of somethingness. In terms of our system, it's flow and go. <laughs> 
okay, it's dissolving back into flow and niroda, cessation. Form is emptiness. But then that's only half of enlightenment. The other half is to understand in specific how emptiness manifests form. Form is emptiness, emptiness is form. So how does emptiness manifest form? Well, originally there is zero. But zero is inherently unstable because there is no actual zero. Zero is just what comes about when all the yeses and all the noes needed to create this or any conceivable universe all balance and cancel. That's why the nothingness of the mystic is a rich nothingness, because it contains infinite positive and negative in a canceled out condition. So originally there is nothing, but, noth but there actually isn't a nothing. There's just the canceling of affirmation and negation. So nothing is inherently unstable, and it breaks apart. And part of it only knows to affirm, and that expands. And the other part only knows to negate, and that contracts. And that creates a cleft, which is the time-space volume for each moment of sensory experience. Um, this is how Sasaki Roshi describes the passage from emptiness to form. And it happens to be, as far as I can see, the way that the Jewish mystics describe it. And I haven't seen this description anywhere else in the world. That blows my mind. <laughs> it's like, wow, this is really cool. So, um, Bin, uh, bina means to know in the sense of separating things, to make discriminate. It's discriminative knowing. Da'at is to know in the biblical sense, to know in a penetrating way. Like you know by, it's like carnal knowledge. You 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 uh, uh, you have soaked into the thing. That's da'at. And chokhmah is the wisdom that is a spiritual paradigm shift. It's enlightenment. That's exactly the three meanings in the word vipassana. Vipassana means to separate out the strands. Vipassana, to see separate. But vipassana also means vipassana, to see through or into. So I teach you how to separate the strands of experience and then how to let your awareness soak into them so that you can see that they're just made out of vibrating space. Expansion, contraction molds them moment by moment. And if you see that clearly enough, you have <laughs> vipassana in the sense of insight or wisdom. So in Pali, vipassana and Sanskrit, vipassana, it's one word with three connotations. In the Hebrew language, they actually have three words for each, these, each of these kinds of knowing, one for each of these kinds of knowing. 
But they, yes, combine it into a single acronym, at least with this particular group of ultra-Orthodox Jews. And it's Chabad, and that's what they're about. So once again, the, the parallels are rather striking. So um, when I had lunch, and I said, okay, what is it, what is it, you know, what's your thing about? He said, well, through bitul hayesh, to, um, to, to annihilate the somethingness of self, which will then uh, allow you to um, experience a special nothingness. So that's the part of the path that is form is emptiness. And the uh, orthodox way of praying, where you, um, uh, it's body prayer, you move, okay? Um, the idea is that you're trying to become like a flame without any fixation whatsoever. And hopefully at some point in that process, God will blow out the flame, which is exactly nirvana now, isn't it? Exactly what that means, the flame gets blown out. So the actual, that, that Orthodox Jewish body prayer um, that I love, <laughs> I just, it's so much better than mind prayer, uh, um, is that's the whole goal. You're actually trying to be, like, move like a flame and become so flowy that uh, at some point, it'll get blown out and you'll experience b high So that's the part of the path which in terms of our system is sort of related to the gods, right? Then so, but in Zen formulation that's shiki fuiku, that's form is emptiness. Then when that becomes clear, then you can see the other side of the picture. How it is that that gone breaks apart and vibrates self and world into existence and you know where you just came from. Now that person that knows where it just came from and knows where the world just came from sensorially, um, that's called an enlightened person. Um, so that the goal um, according to this rabbi was uh, you heroically throw caution to the wind and um, let the source annihilate the somethingness within you. As the result of that, you'll be gifted in daily life with uh, and as the result of living your life that way, you optimally contribute to something called tikkun olam, the mending of the world. Mm -hmm. 